Well, welcome here today. Glad to have you. Hope you're doing well. If you're new, my name is Jonathan. I'm the lead pastor here at Ridge Church. And uh, we are in the middle of a series on the book of Leviticus. Uh, last week, we talked about the first seven chapters of Leviticus, about this, this new way of entering into God's presence, this invitation that he had to us to draw near, and how it's about grace and his welcoming us into his presence. And, and today we come now to the next three chapters in the book of Leviticus, Leviticus 8, 9, and 10, which is all about the priests. And the interesting thing about these three chapters is that they, unlike the rest of Leviticus, are actually a story. Uh, and in fact, uh, they contain one of the strangest stories in the entire Bible. So if you read that these three chapters sort of on the surface, you're left saying, what on earth was that? What's this all about? But if you read it carefully, in light of what we know of God's word and, and what it says, it turns out that these chapters tell us a great deal both about who God is and about who he calls us to be. So let's, uh, let's dig in. We're going to start in Leviticus chapter 8, beginning in verse 1. Here's, uh, here's how this story begins. It says this, The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Take Aaron and his sons with him, and the garments, and the anointing oil, and the bull of the sin offering, and the two rams, and the basket of unleavened bread, and assemble all the congregation at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And Moses did as the Lord commanded him, and the congregation was assembled at the entrance of the tent of meeting. So God says to Moses, look, now it's time to ordain the priests. It's time to choose and to dedicate the priests to, to lead the people in worship. And, and the, the, the people that are chosen is Aaron, Moses' brother, and his sons. But before they get into the ceremony, they invite, or God instructs, Moses to gather all of the people of Israel, to gather at the entrance of the tabernacle, to see and to watch this ceremony. Now this is, this is important because you see in the ancient world, most of the other nations around them, the priests and what they did was secret. Uh, being a priest was about having secret knowledge, uh, having inside information, having power through keeping everything kind of secretive and unknown. But that's not to be the case in this situation because God is calling not only Aaron and his sons to be priests, but if you remember from the first week when we talked about, about Leviticus, God's intention is that the entire nation of Israel would be a nation of priests. So therefore, what's about to happen, God wants the people of Israel to, to witness because the, the role of the priest, the, the, the power that the priest has comes from them sharing this understanding of who God is with others. It's, it's about everyone witnessing what happens in these priests' lives so that they can embody the same thing in their own lives, which is really interesting, right? I mean, at the, at the core of the book of Leviticus, there are these normal, average, ordinary people that God entrusts to show the world what it's like to have a relationship with Him. In fact, as we read through these chapters, you're going to notice that there's nothing particularly special about Aaron and his sons. They were not like the top of their class. They were not the most charismatic people out there. They weren't, uh, uh, they weren't the smartest. And, and it doesn't even say that they were the most spiritual. Instead, instead they're priests because God chooses them. Average, ordinary, everyday guys. As one, as one commentator says, these are just dudes with beards. But the dudes with beards that God calls to be his priests. And they're set apart by 
him and called by him. And if you think about it, this is kind of a risky thing for God to do, right? I mean, there's this, this vision of where God wants the world to be. There's this, this relationship that God wants to have with people. And now he entrusts these, these priests, these very ordinary average people with the responsibility of displaying to the world what that looks like and what it means and how it's lived out in day-to-day -day life. And that's a risk because those guys, those priests might just mess it up. Now, this is what God does in the Old Testament, but he does the same thing in the New Testament with us. We talked about this a couple of, of weeks ago, but the Apostle Peter, he writes this to the church. Here's what he says, speaking to us, to you and me. He says, but you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful life. This is the calling on your life and mine. You know, you and me, I mean, we're just, at least most of us are just pretty average, normal people. That, that's me for sure. And yet we're called to be priests. We're called by God, chosen by him, not because we're the greatest, not, not because of anything special we've done, but simply because of his grace in our lives. And his call on us is that we are to display to the world. I mean, Peter says, you know, the, the, declare the praises of him who called us out of darkness into this wonderful light. We're to show the world what it means to live in relationship with the living God, which is incredible calling on our life. It's also fairly risky on God's part because, because we might mess it up. But this is how God chooses to do it. And so in chapter 8 of Leviticus, he begins by having all the people come gather to watch this ordination ceremony that's about to take place. And, and now that we're going to read about this ceremony, and when you read it, I mean, if you read Leviticus, you read it, it seems so strange and so weird and, and so out there. But you have to understand that, that it's not actually really what we're experiencing. What we're reading about is just a ceremony. And you know what ceremonies are about, right? I mean, a ceremony is really about acknowledging the change in status of a person from one state of being to another. So, for example, uh, someone who goes from single to being married, there's a ceremony. It's called a wedding ceremony. Or someone who goes from being a student to being a, a graduate goes to a graduation ceremony. It just acknowledges a change in, in sort of the state of being. And the things that happen in that ceremony represent, they have symbolic meaning in that process. And if you understand what those things are and why they're there, then it's beautiful and amazing. If you don't, you say, this is kind of strange. I mean, think about it. Think about it in reverse. Before we read about this ceremony, think about if you went to one of these people in Moses' day, one of the people that were at, outside the gate for this ceremony, and you said, let me explain a, a wedding ceremony in in." 2,000 years ago, uh, 2,000 years from now, in a place you've never heard of called Canada. And you say, look, when, a, when a, someone gets married, everyone comes. Uh, all, all the guests come. They sit in straight lines, in rows. The men often wear uncomfortable pieces of cloth around their neck that hang down. Everyone waits, looking at the front, until the bride appears at the back. And when she appears at the back, everyone stands. This music fills the room from somewhere. And then she wears wearing this white robe, this white dress. Usually on her father's arm, she's walked down the aisle. And standing at the front is a bunch of 
of ladies in dresses and a bunch of men in, in these outfits called tuxedos, little bow ties usually, and, and, and the groom. And, and she arrives there and, and, and then she says some vows and, and, um, and they exchange rings and then they sign a piece of paper. Now the person from Israel would say, from ancient Israel would say, I get the exchange of vows part, but the rest of that stuff? I mean, why do they sit in rows? Well, why not stand in a circle like, like seems more natural? And, and, and why the white dress? And can she not walk down the aisle herself? Why does her father have to help her down the aisle? And, and, and who are those ladies standing up there? What are they doing up there? And, and what are those guys, why are they standing there? And, I mean, they'd have all these questions because all of it has symbolism and meaning. But if you don't have the context, it just seems weird and strange. But if you know it, I mean, it's natural and normal and beautiful. And, and so as we read this ceremony, understand that it's not that strange or weird to them. And it all has meaning and purpose. So, so let's look at it together. Here's, here's how it begins. In chapter 8, verse 5, it says this. And Moses said to the congregation, This is the thing that the Lord has commanded to be done. And Moses brought Aaron and his sons and washed them with water. And he put the coat on him and tied the sash around his waist and clothed him with the robe and put the ephod on him and tied the skillfully woven band of the ephod around him, binding it to him in the band, with the band. And he placed the breastpiece on him, and in the breastpiece he placed the Urim and the Thummim, and he set the turban on his head, and, the, and on the turban in front he set the golden plate, the holy crown, as the Lord commanded Moses. So the ceremony begins with, with these men being washed with water. It's, it's a symbol, as it is almost everywhere, of purification and cleansing. They're purified, they're, they're cleansed before they take on this role. And then they're dressed in these priestly garments, a robe and a sash and an ephod, which is kind of, kind of a vest. It was this vest that had these beautiful stones on it. And on these stones were written the names of the tribes of Israel so that so they were represented before God when the priest went before him. And, and a breastplate and a, and a turban and a, and a gold plate above the turban that said, Holy to the Lord. I mean, it was this, it was, they, they were dressed now as priests. And again, the, the clothes that they wear, it indicates that they have a specific role. They, they have an important role to play. And again, we get this. I mean, you go shopping at at Save on Food and, the, and the, the guy or the lady beside you just looks like you one day, but if they come back the next day wearing the police uniform, exact same person. But once they're wearing the uniform, it, it indicates, oh no, they're called to something special. They have a particular role to play and the uniform lets you know that. And then if you read on, it says that Moses took and he anointed the everything in the tent of meeting with this oil, and then he poured oil on Aaron's head and on the heads of his sons. Now again, oil in the Bible is symbolic of, of a calling on a person's life. It, it, it's a way of symbolizing that God had called them to this. They hadn't earned it. They, they didn't get it because they were special. It was God's grace that they were going to be in this role. And then after that, if you read on, they offer a burnt offering. And we talked about it last week. A burnt offering is about atoning for the sins of the priests. So think about this. This ceremony begins with, with, with people who are forgiven. Not unlike us. Only we're forgiven not based on the blood of bulls and rams, but rather on the, on the shed blood of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And, and it's about these people who are chosen and called, not based on how good they are, but by God's grace which is you and me, right? We didn't earn anything to be in, 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 God, in relationship with God. It's just His grace in our life. 
and, and they're set apart, they're, they're consecrated, they're, they're washed. And again, we see that in baptism. Baptism is a way of saying my old life has died like with Christ and my new, my new life has risen with him. And there's a sense that, that we are set apart and, and, then, and then we're anointed by the power of the Holy Spirit at work in our lives to accomplish what he has called us to do. In other words, in other words, you and I are called to be priests before God. That's the calling on our lives. Now, if you read on in this chapter, after, after doing this in verse 23, they come to another, uh, another sacrifice. It's the sacrifice of a ram. And here's what it says in verse uh, 23 of chapter 8. And he killed the ram, and Moses took some of its blood and put it on the lobe of Aaron's right ear and on the thumb of his right hand and on the big toe of his right foot. Now again, you read that, that's strange. They kill this ram, they take the blood, they put it on the lobe of the ear, on the right thumb and on the right foot. What's this all about? Well, you see, when you are a, a, a priest, there is no, there's no part of your life that is, is not devoted to that which is sacred. There, there is no separation for a priest between what is sacred and what is secular. All of life, if you're a priest before God, is to be holy. Everything is spiritual. So, so you, the lobe represents what you hear. Your ear and, and, and your hand represents what you do and your, your foot represents where you go. And, and what Moses is saying, the, the symbolism of this is that every aspect of your life as a priest before God is lived in sacredness before God. It's not part of your life is spiritual and part of your life is, is secular. All of it is spiritual. So if you're a priest in the temple and you're offering sacrifices, that is deeply spiritual. But if you're a priest in the temple and you're shoveling the ashes from the, from the altar and, and cleaning that up, you're also doing that on holy ground. It's just as sacred. If, you are, if you're standing here preaching a sermon like I am, that's a sacred thing to do before God. That's a spiritual thing. <clears throat> but if you're stocking shelves at Walmart, if you're running a pool cleaning company, if you're, if you're crunching numbers in a cubicle, that's also sacred. You are a priest before God and that, that just as much in doing that as I am in doing what I'm doing. You see, for a priest, for, for someone who's called to be a priest before God, there's no boundaries, no, no borders between the sacred and the secular. All of life is to be lived in holiness before God. That's what, that's what Moses communicates by this. And then if you read the rest of the chapter, they basically do a, well, we talked about last week, a grain offering, and they have this meal together to celebrate before God. And then, at the end of all of this ceremony, as they come sort of near to the end of the day, in verse 23, it says this. Oh, sorry, not 23, 35. In verse 35, it says this. At the entrance of the tent of meeting, you shall remain day and night for seven days, performing what the Lord has charged. So now Moses says to the priest, what you did now, you're going to stay here for the next seven days, right here at the tent or at the entrance of the tent of meeting. Now, again, this is, this is important. This speaks a great deal of what being a priest is. The question is this, first of all, why seven days? Well, seven days because seven days represents the, 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 the process of creation. 
represents the fact that God is beginning and creating a new way for his people to be in relationship with him. So that's important, those seven days. But secondly, why do they have to remain at the entrance to the tent of meeting? Why, why right there? And the answer is because, because the entrance to the tent of meeting is, is this threshold, this doorway between these two worlds. The one world is the camp of the Israelites out there. It's the place where just all of the regular messiness of life goes on, where, where people have babies and wash clothes and where they make business deals and, and deal with health issues and just where, where all of life happens. And, and, the, and the tent of meeting. I mean, th this, is, this is this separate space. This is this other space where, where God dwells in all of his holiness. And, and see, the, the, the priest is to be right at the threshold between all of this and all of this because their role is to have a foot in both worlds. Th their role is to, is to bridge that connection between these two worlds. See, one of the problems when we get talking about being priests is that depending upon your experience, you have different associations with that idea of being priests. Some people, when they think about priests, have very good associations. They just have warm memories of, of someone who is a priest in their life, and, and it's really rich. But other times, people have very negative connotations when they think about priests. They think about scandals and abuses and, and dry, repetitive rituals. And, and so... When we get talking about priests, it's important that we talk about, like, what does it mean to be a priest? Not, not like a job, not like the guy who has a collar or a robe or a job, like a paid job doing it. But rather, what does it mean to have the role of a priest, to, to be called to be a priest? What, what is it that a priest is really supposed to do? And you see, to be a priest means to live in a tension between the world as it is and the world as it could be. To, to live between how people are and, and, and how people could be. The, the priestly role is to have a, a foot in both worlds. I mean, parents often do this with their kids. They, they see where their kids are and they know what their world is about, but, but they have this glimpse, this, this vision of, of, of where their kids could go if they make the, the right kinds of choices along the way. Or a coach. A coach and a sports team plays a priestly role, right? They, they have this team with these, these members and these skills and, and their abilities, but they also have this vision of what the team could be with the right coaching and, and the right training, and, and they call them to this. And, and you see, that's what it means to be a priest. To be a priest requires a, 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 a certain amount of patience and, and wisdom. And it means that you live with some pain and some some ache and some longing in your heart because you see where it is and you know where it could go. And it means that sometimes you live with, with these, these frustrated desires because you're like, oh, if only it could, if only it could get there. This is where, where it should go. And, and a priest celebrates the, you know, the, the, the little victories, the, the, the little wins that move a person in a particular way. And, 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 and they try not to discourage when it goes backwards. That's what a priest does. And, and I mean, Jesus, you see this in him. There's this time where Jesus is riding into the city of Jerusalem. It's a triumphal entry. The, 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 the road is lined with people who are, who are crying out, Hosanna. And, but what they're expecting, and Jesus knows that what they're looking for is a political king, a, a, a ruler who will rise up and throw off Rome. And as, as he rides into Jerusalem, as, as they're crying out his name, he sees the city gates and the walls of Jerusalem and he begins to weep. 
And Luke records what, what he said. He said this, if you, even you, he's speaking to the people of Jerusalem that day. If you, even you had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. The days will come when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. He says, look, Jesus says, look, I know where you are and I know what you want, but that's, that's not what you really want. You don't want a political king. What you need is a savior. If only you could see this. If only you could come here. But you can't. You're not going to see it. And so in the end, it will bring destruction into your life, into your world. See, the priest lives in that in-between place. The way something could be, the way something is and the way it could be. He lives in that doorway between the two worlds. In fact, if you think about this, I mean, if you think about the role of a priest, sometimes... In some traditions, a priest will literally get up and tell the people, your sins are forgiven. Or the priest can stand among the people and say to them, you're a son and a daughter of God. Or they can say to them, you've been crowned with glory and honor. And the question is, what gives a person the right to stand up and make that kind of a statement, those kinds of declarations? Because that person is just like you. They're, they're just an average, regular, normal, everyday person. So what gives them that right? The answer is that they've been called and consecrated and set apart. And they do it not out of their own standing, but out of their standing in what God has called them to do. Which means that when it comes to you being a priest in your world, you say, well, I'm nobody. Yeah, yeah, but, but you've been called by God. He's given you that role to speak truth and life into the world around you. I mean, think of someone who's a priest to you. Think of someone who... Who would you, you would never think of them as a priest, like with a collar or a robe. No, not that way. Think of someone who's come into your life and they stood between two spaces in your world. They've seen where you're at and they, they see where you could be and they bridge that gap and they speak truth into your world. And while they understand that you're here, they speak to you and say, but this is where you could be. This is where you could go. And they serve you and they help you and they guide you and they inspire you and they teach you. You see, that's what a priest does. That's what we're called to do, to, to, to see people where they are and to love and to serve them and to call them to enter into the place where God is at work in their life, where God is doing something that only God can do. That's what it means to be a priest. That's the calling on your life and on mine. The priest here spends seven days on the threshold, at the entrance between the camp and the tent of meeting, as a way to remind the priest, this is your job. This is what it's all about. That's how chapter 8 ends. Chapter 9 begins this way. On the eighth day, Moses called Aaron and his sons and the elders of Israel. And he goes on to tell, that, uh, tell us that if you read the rest of the chapter 9 of Leviticus, that, that they began to offer all the sacrifices and the offerings that had been laid out in chapters 1 to 7, they, they began to do everything that they'd been told to do. Chapter 9 is like describing the grand opening, right? I mean, you, you decide you're going to open a store or a restaurant, and you, you buy the place, you, you decorate it, you, you get the equipment you need, you hire the people you need, you practice, and then the day comes where you fling open the doors and you say, hey, 
We're open. Let's do this. That's what's happening in chapter 9 of Leviticus. And now with a new tent of meeting and a new set of rituals and these new priests that have been newly ordained, it all begins. And, and, uh, and if you read it, it's just going so well. And, and partway through the day, in the middle of these offerings, tells us that Moses and Aaron, they left where the altar was, where these offerings were, and they went into the tent of meeting. Now, just in case you're not familiar with how the tent of meeting is set up, let me just describe it to you quickly. It has three parts. The outer part is a courtyard area that is surrounded by a, gate, by, by a fence or a wall with an opening at the beginning, at, at the front. That's the, that's the entrance to the tent of meeting. That's where the, the priest stayed. It's outdoors. And, and, and just past the entrance was the altar. That's where all the, the fire and the blood and the sacrifice and the smoke. I mean, that was all outdoors stuff. Understandably so. But if you went past that, there was a building, a, a tent. And that tent had that building had two rooms. The first room was called the holy place. And in that was another altar that, that burned incense as an offering to God, a, a, a candelabra that was beautiful, lit the place, and a, and a table that had some bread on it, an offering to God. And the, only the priests were allowed in there. But behind that was one more room. It was called the most holy place or the, the holy of holies. And in that, there was nothing except the Ark of the Covenant which was considered the very throne of God himself. And no one, no one but the high priest ever went into that room except for one day of the year, on the most holy day of the year, and only after doing some very serious ceremonies to make sure they were utterly clean and pure of sin. So that's how it's set up. On this day, on opening day, grand opening, while all the, all the, Sacrifices are being made out at the altar outside. Moses and Aaron go into the inside, into just the first part, the, the holy place. And there, likely, they pray. And when they come out, well, let me, let me describe what, it, what happens. In verse 23 and 24 of chapter 9, here's what it says. And Moses and Aaron went into the tent of meeting. And when they came out, they blessed the people. And the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed the burnt offering and the pieces of fat on the altar. And when all the people saw it, they shouted and fell on their faces. So, this is the day it all begins. And this guy, Aaron, this, this average guy, I mean, he, 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 the God, I mean, God has forgiven him and set him apart and, and, and consecrated him. And, and he's just doing what God commands him to do. He's, He's presenting the sacrifices that God calls him to, to, to sacrifice. And he goes to the tent of meeting. He prays. He, he talks to God. He, he comes out and he blesses the people. Just this average guy doing whatever God tells him to do. And you know what happens? God shows up in this powerful way. Fire comes from God and it, and it hits this altar. And the, the, the offering that was smoldering there just burns up instantly. And the people see it and they, and they, they cry out with joy. And, and they fall on their face in worship before God. And these average, regular, ordinary people experience the presence of God. This is what happens when God's people in their priestly role just honor him. Average as they are, other people experience the presence of God. And this is how, this is how chapter 9 ends. I mean, it's this beautiful, amazing scene filled with joy and goodness and, and awe and beauty and wonder. I mean, it is perfect. It's like, ta-da, well done. I mean, where, where can we go from here? And that's where we come to, to chapter 10. Here's how 
Chapter 10 begins. Chapter 10, verse 1. Now, day, now, now, sorry. now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it and laid incense on it and offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. Oh, man. Oh, man. I mean, this thing was going so good. It was going so well. And now two of Aaron's four sons, he's got four sons, two of them take what the Bible calls, what Leviticus here calls unauthorized fire. They present it before God and he strikes them dead. And now there's these two dead priests lying there and the whole thing becomes this huge mess. In fact, the, the rest of chapter 10 is sort of the, the, the emotional and logistic aftermath, the cleaning up of this, this tragedy that is suddenly struck in the middle of this most beautiful day. In fact, if you read on in verse 3, it says this. Then Moses said to Aaron, remember, this is one brother talking to another brother. They're, they're, they're brothers. He says, this is what the Lord has said. Among those who are near me, I will be sanctified. And before all the people, I will be glorified. And Aaron held his peace. In other words, Moses kind of turns to Aaron and says, it's what happens when you're supposed to be honoring God and you mess with him in this kind of a role, you end up dead. And Aaron, who just lost two of his boys, he just keeps his mouth shut. And then in verse 4, it goes on to say this. And Moses called Mishael and Elzaphan, the sons of Uziel, the uncle of Aaron, and he said to them, come near, carry your brothers away from the front of the sanctuary and out of the camp. Now it's like we've got to clean up the dead bodies. So come and take these, these dead priests from the presence of the, the, this, the, the, the temple and, and take them out of the, out of the camp. And, and then in verse 6, Moses goes on to say this, And Moses said to Aaron and to Eleazar and Ithmar his sons, Do not let the hair of your heads hang loose, and do not tear your clothes, lest you die, and wrath come upon all the congregation. But let your brothers, the whole house of Israel, bewail the burning that the Lord has kindled. Now Moses tells Aaron and, and, these two, and his two sons, who just lost, I mean Aaron just lost his two sons, these two sons lost their brothers. He says, look, you can't mourn like you normally would. In those days, if someone died, you would, you would mess your hair up, you would rip your clothes, you would, you would mourn. Moses says to Aaron and, and the other two sons, you can't do that. You can be sad, but you can't do that. Everyone else can do it. You have to keep going because you're in the role of a priest. And then, if you read on in in verse 8 and 9, now God speaks to Aaron, and this is what he says. The Lord spoke to Aaron, saying, Drink no wine or strong drink, you or your sons with you, when you go into the tent of meeting, lest you die. It shall be a statue forever, statute forever be throughout your generations. So, so God now tells Aaron and his sons, no drinking on the job. No, no drinking when you're serving as a priest in the temple. And if you read the rest of the chapter after this, Moses basically tells them to carry on with what they were doing before. So, this is a strange story. And the question is, what do we make of this? What, what is going on here? Well, let's, let's talk about it. First of all, this unauthorized fire. Moses doesn't explain for us in Leviticus, in this chapter, what it's all about. But there are enough clues that we get a pretty good idea of what, what's going on. These two sons, they took... Their censers, these sort of containers, put incense in them, and they, they went and offered unauthorized 
fire in the tent of meeting, which means that they left the place, they left the place where all the altar, the altar outside where all the offerings were taking place. And they went inside. And if you read Leviticus 16, it seems that they went not just to the most, to the holy place. They went to the holy of holies. They literally barged into the throne room of God himself whom only the high priest was allowed to go in once here, they barged in and began to do all kinds of things with these censers in the middle of this most holy place that no one was to enter except for on the most sacred day and then only the high priest. On top of that, it's fascinating to note that in this whole chapter, in the midst of it, the, the thing that God says to Aaron is, look, you can't be drinking on the job. You, you can't be having all kinds of alcohol, which is, kind of out of place with everything else that's going on here, which seems to suggest that his sons were probably drunk when they did it. And on top of that, it seems likely that when they did this very thing, it was a bit of a power move. It, it was the first day. And the only one who was to go into that place was the, was the high priest, their father. But it seems likely that they said to themselves, Imagine the fame. Imagine the glory that we will have if it's us who is the first to enter into the most holy place to provide an offering. You see, for, for those priests, they were using their, their role as a priest to become powerful and important. And that's never the role of a priest. It's never about power or fame. The glory only and ever is to go to God. Which is interesting, right? I mean, They, they, they wanted more. They, you know, they, these, these young guys, they, they were kind of at the very center of the action. They, they were on the inner circle. They, they had this front row seat. They were given this role and this responsibility to kind of show the people how to be in relationship with God. But they couldn't handle it. They couldn't handle that, the, the kind of temptations that come with that kind of scrutiny in their life, that, that kind of a place, and, and they weren't content with the kind of responsibilities that all, they already had. They wanted more, which is kind of a sobering warning for those who would be tempted to use their role as a priest to, to have more. I mean, there's, there's great possibilities uh, when you're in that kind of a role, but, but it, it, there's also this great danger, right? I mean, the, they, they get near to the fire and the fire burns them. The, it kills them because they're using it for the wrong purposes. See, the problem with these guys was that they, it wasn't that they, they failed. The problem was that they got everything they wanted and it wasn't enough. And because they wanted more, they came to an end. You see, at the level of responsibility that, that God had called them to, and given how they acted, this this thing, this fire that came out and killed them, this was not the irrational response of a, of a temper tantrum God. This was a very rational and very reasonable response to the thing that they had done. So that was the unauthorized fire. So the question is this, where does that leave Aaron and his sons who are devastated by this thing and yet have this responsibility before God? I mean, how do they respond to something like this? When it all becomes this big mess, but, but you see, you have to understand it's going to be messy. It's going to be messy because of the way God set it up. God, God chooses to use ordinary, average, everyday people to be his priests, to, to represent him to the world around him, to give flesh and blood to what it is that he is doing in the world. But 
but they don't always get it right. They, they don't always just do it perfectly. They, they, you know, being a priest is about being in between. It's about who you are and who you know God's calling you to be. It's, it's about where you are and where God, by the power of His Spirit at work in your life, is leading you on. And that process is messy. That, that process, it's just challenging. I mean, think of, think of the many high-profile Christian leaders who have fallen from grace over the last number of years. Turns out, they're just average, regular people like you and me with, with weaknesses and frailties as well. And when you hear about it, when you see it happening, I mean, it's heartbreaking and it's, it's tragic and it's wrong and what they did is sinful and, and there should be consequences for what they did. And, and God deals with them and he brings it to light and, and he, he deals with those priests when they, when, they, when they walk in that way. But the fact of the matter is it's been happening since day one. It's what happens when you put real people in this role as priests. And so it's important that you don't put your hope and your trust in those priests. They will fail you. They are not, I mean, they, they are human. They, they are not perfect. And the danger is that if you put your trust and your hope in the priest instead of the one that they seek to point to, that when they fail, then your faith in an unchanging, totally trustworthy, good God is often shaken. And you say, well, how can this be? Because you've misunderstood the role of priest and you've misunderstood that it has been messy from the very, very beginning. It's interesting. If you read the rest of Leviticus chapter 10, neither Moses nor God seem particularly surprised by all of this. In fact, the story from the rest of the chapter is told very matter-of-factly. Uh, you, you know, the sons offered unauthorized fire. Uh, their bodies are hauled away. There's some mourning and sadness. But, but then the next verse is the message is this. Just keep going. Keep doing what God has, has called you to do. You know, you think about it. Aaron and his family, they've humiliated God. They, they've disobeyed his very clear commands. They, they have broken the, 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 the covenant with him. But then God, right away, he says, I mean, he, he adjusts some things. He says, no, no, no more drinking. He says, but this is a lasting count, uh, uh, statute with you. In other words, this is a covenant that goes on and on. So just keep going. You might think that, I mean, they, you know, they're now unqualified. They, they, they're suspended without pay. They're, they're, they're put on leave. They're, they're canceled because of what they have done. But God doesn't say that. He doesn't say, you guys have screwed up. I'm going to find some different average guys to do this. No, he says, look. Let's change a few things and you just keep going. I mean, keep calm, carry on. That's, that's the message. See, apparently God can handle this kind of thing. Apparently this doesn't destroy God's reputation. Apparently God, apparently, I mean, obviously, God is sovereign over all. And so it's okay. You just keep going. Look, you too are a priest before God. When you mess up, if you get it wrong, if you fail, it's not the end. It's not like you're disqualified and no more and you're fired and God says, fine, I'm going to find someone else. He's like, no, no. You seek forgiveness, you adjust, and you just keep calm and carry on. And you know, when, when, when major Christian leaders mess up, you just keep going. Don't you put your trust in them. They're just, they're just dudes with beards. 
right? I mean, they're, they're insightful, they're funny, they're engaging. Uh, most of them love Jesus deeply. But when they implode, when their world implodes, when their ministry implodes, it should not cause your faith to implode. It should not rattle your world. You can be sad, but the call is to keep calm and to carry on. The fact of the matter is, you can't put your trust in any of them. But there is one priest. There is one that you can put your total trust in. That's Jesus himself. You know, the, the, the writer of Hebrews, again, he talks about this and he explains that Jesus is the perfect high priest. He's the one that you can trust no matter what. Here's, here's what he writes. He says, therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are. Yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Jesus is the only perfect high priest. He's without sin. He will never fail you. And he stands in the gap between heaven and earth. He, he knows. I mean, the writer says he, he knows what it's like to be you. He knows your situation. He understands where you're at. He understands the challenges and the pressures and, and, the, and the pains in your life. But he also knows what he wants to do in your life. He knows what he wants you to be. And he's not content to leave you there. And so the call on your life is to step forward, to move forward, to, to go on with what it is that he calls you to and he says, you can come confidently into the throne of grace to seek the help and the mercy that is needed to go in the way that it's meant to go. This is what it means to be a priest. This is the, who Jesus is as the priest. And this is the calling that God has on your life and mine if we're followers of Jesus to live as priests before him. Would you bow your head? Let's pray together. Well, God and Heavenly Father, it's quite a passage it's quite a story. And yet, even though it was thousands and thousands of years ago, it speaks so clearly to us today about your call on us. God, to be priests, to live in that gap, to, to speak truth into the world around us in love, with wisdom and patience, that we might see and help others move forward, that we too might move forward. And God, we thank you for Jesus, that he is our perfect high priest. God, that we can look to him because he knows and understands. And God, because he's calling us forward. So Lord, may we be faithful. May we be faithful in our lives to listen to our priests, to go forward, oh God, and to become what it is that you call us to. We praise now in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for joining us today. I want to I end with these words from the book of Jude. Here's what it says. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forevermore. Amen. Amen. God bless you. Have a great Sunday. We'll see you next week.